Now, I have to tell you, it's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. Hello, and welcome to another edition of our State of Reform podcast. My name is DJ Wilson, part of a group here at State of Reform, bringing you events and content and videos and podcasts like this one to try to broaden our collective discussion and dialogue around healthcare and health policy. Alaska is not only the biggest and, and of course, most northerly, but it really is a very nuanced state for health policy, tremendously a leader in a number of ways, and has tremendous challenges on a scale that the lower 48 can seldom really relate to. And you see those sometimes in things like alcohol abuse, sometimes things like suicide. So it's a unique place to talk about health policy, and we are sitting down with both candidates for the Republican nomination for governor here. In a previous episode, we chatted with former state senator Mike Dunleavy, who represented the Matsu Valley. In this episode, we're sitting down with Mead Treadwell, former lieutenant governor of the state of Alaska, and a Republican, I think he'd say, uh, comes very much from the, the business wing of the party, focused on data and results, return on investment for the state's support, state's tax dollars. And I think that's the context of our conversation with him today about healthcare and health policy in Alaska. This event is taped before a live studio audience in downtown Anchorage. Turns out we had a little bit of a problem with the audio. So the audio ends up not being optimal. But nevertheless, it gives you a good sense of needs thoughts and perspectives and approach on health care and health policy. So so without further ado, this is former Alaska Lieutenant Governor Mead Treadwell. And it's, it, it, in 
means that you know you can be a tough Republican on the budget. You can be a tough Republican on growing the economy. You can be a, a tough Republican on fighting crime. But you cannot ignore the human compassionate things that we have to do in government to help save lives, to help families stay together, to help families be functional, to correct a Department of Corrections that has too much, and I'll word here, recidivism. To, to, to do those things, and I think the current situation has forced us across the spectrum to deal with issues that, you know, sometimes people don't want to deal with. So we're, we're going to spend plenty of time on policy issues and what you'll what you'll do when you're Alaska's next governor. Tell us what you've been doing before the spotlight has been shared sure. on you. What have you been doing since your last election? Well, uh, in the last four years, I've been helping bring more investment to Alaska. But it's had me around the world talking about the Arctic as an area uh, of economic growth and uh, the capabilities that we have as people to create much more in the way of output than we have in the way of input in terms of the capital income and contribution to society. So I've done that for four years. I've also had had two jobs really unrelated to healthcare. Well, I've uh, represented the state in a five-state interstate compact going for a balanced budget to the U.S. Constitution. And that issue is essentially dealing with entitlements. How do we get entitlements under control so they have a balanced budget in the United States? Health care is a subject, and balanced budgets is a subject that nobody wants to talk about. So I'm going to ask you specifically about the, the comparison between you and your Republican opponent or opponents. But first, what is a Meade Treadwell Republican? Meade Treadwell Republican remembers that the purpose of government is to protect your liberty, not to take it away. The purpose of government is to pay its bills and keep its promises. The purpose of government is to help us build the economy, especially because we own so many resources, and if we don't get those resources out into the economy, we're not going to have anything. The purpose of government is to take care of the People who are helpless who need help, but not encourage or incentivize helplessness. So, how would you sort of define the sharpest or starkest contrast between you and Heather? Sharpest contrast between us is experience. Uh, I come to this job as uh, somebody who started started businesses. I was a treasurer of a company that was the Alaska Gas 2.0 with Allen 4.0, but I understand energy economics. I've been in the tech startup world uh, for, for a long period of time, and so it helped to get a lot of other companies started. I've been involved in company turnarounds. Uh, in civic life, I've been basically battling for Alaska's rights, uh, whether it's rights to its land or you know the requirement that the Constitution says that we defend all 50 states, not just uh, 48 of them when missile defense came up. And I haven't quit. Uh, I'm bringing in a Republican primary where uh, up against a guy whose policies, I, whose policy statements I basically agree with in many, many of them. When you get down to the minutia, there's certainly things I would have done differently, uh, differently on the crime bill, differently on the permanent fund dividend, because I don't think he was effective where where he wanted to be effective. How would you be different on the PFD? Well, on the PFD, uh, you know, he was part of a group that didn't vote to repeal Governor Walker's veto when they had a chance. He's, uh, he's basically been 
in a position where he, he left the Senate before we got to POMB, so he could have been there part of shaping that, could have been there part of protecting the formula as, as that legislation goes. So I just think when you're elected, and I helped him get elected. I went and raised money to, to help Republican candidates in 2012 when he was, when he was elected. And uh, I was sorry to see him quit. Can I ask you about this sort of uh, this state senator Dunleavy stepping down from the legislature that's been mentioned by you a couple of times and sort of out there as part of the conversation. Help me understand the context that you think that decision should be placed. Is that a missed opportunity that he wasn't in the legislature? I'll I just put it so we're in a campaign, all right? In a campaign, I've got my experience to show, he's got his experience to show. He's got very little record. His slogan is standing tall for Alaska, and I can't match his height. Uh, but I really think it's grandstanding tall for Alaska. And that's, you know, I'm not, that's not a cheap political shot. It's if you're elected to, to do what you say you're going to do, stay there and then fight. And the one thing I've learned is that, and I think I know many of the people here who are in a fight on a particular issue, sometimes you lose a skirmish. That doesn't mean, uh, you know, holler at your colleagues and quit. It means stay in the fight. You've got people to convince. There are, there are people here I know who are on one side or the other of this race where, you know, we can disagree without being disagreeable. We can work together to figure out, okay, if, if my solution doesn't work, what's another solution? But you don't have to give up your principles. So let's look ahead to August 22nd, sunny, bright, shiny day, and then you get into November, you win the general election, it's beautiful, the sun's out, the sun's out birds are chirping, everything's happy. Then take the uh, the governor's position. What is the first two or three things? What are the first two or three things you do as you become governor on healthcare? What's at the top of your healthcare agenda? Well, the thing that I believe everybody here in this room understands is that we have to have an agenda and a plan on affordability, on accessibility, and on quality of healthcare. And we've been working on those three issues as a community for a long period of time. We also have a, a blazing fire in our budget. Medicaid growth is much, much higher than it was expected, much, much higher than it was promised when Governor Walker expanded. We have uh, a, a mushrooming set of entitlements in the state that have to be addressed, one, by working on cost controls, and two, on getting people to work otherwise so that we don't have so many people meeting with entitlements. And the governor's first job is going to be to put together a budget, there's some constitutional things I'd like to see to help the budget. Frankly, I've been a fan of cash-based forward budgeting for a long time because too often our budget is set in Alaska by this crystal ball of having economists guess for us what oil prices and production are going to be 15 months ahead of time. How about this simple concept? Let's let's spend what we collected last year at the most rather than guess what we're going to collect next year. We have budget limitations that aren't working. All right. Uh, but then we have to bring together the healthcare providers and say, what is it that is going to make us not the most expensive place for healthcare in the world? We have to have the discussion not only in healthcare, but in education and crime, which, which says, you know, it's not just a battle over our inputs. You know, the debate tends to be if you're cutting, if you're cutting this number, you must not favor education or you must not favor healthcare. I'm more interested in the outputs than the inputs. And when our inputs are so high and our outputs are so ineffective, you know, that means doesn't, don't do the same thing again. It means figure out something else uh, to make your outputs better. 
So let me tick through a couple of topics that have been hot button issues under uh, Governor Parnell and now under Governor Walker. Medicaid expansion first, is that something that Treadwell administration would likely strengthen or likely work to repeal? I've got to ask a fundamental question first. Why is it that when we were, you know, the number was 20 to 40,000 uncovered people, and now we've got a third of the state on Medicaid? On Medicare, uh, we've got a situation where not enough providers want to serve Medicare patients, and Medicare patients complain. We have problems with, uh, uh, you know, we have an aging population in many of the kinds of specialties that uh, we want to see here, I'm told. Uh, that we don't have enough specialists here in the state. So there's a quality issue as well as an affordability issue. So it sounds like you want to get into the data a little bit. Well, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not great at the data. I, I'll tell you this. It's, it's the easiest thing in healthcare is it's, it may be better to be silent and talk a fool or open your mouth and remove all doubt. But the, uh, I, I guess uh, I'll, I'll say this. You can't be blind and deaf to the challenges that we have. But it's got to be a whole conversation. It's got to be a whole conversation about costs and a whole conversation about what our relationship is with the federal government in this. But, you know, the question of block grants comes up. I see the left demonize it, the right say this is where we've got to go. All I know is Alaska is a pretty unique place, right? And if we can tailor health care uh, to, to help, there have been some remarkable things that the left and the right have done together. I mean, having the Anchorage Community Health Clinic is very important. It, it got people out of emergency rooms. Having uh, the VA and our native health clinics around the state work together has been incredibly important. I had a, after my dad died, I was essentially raised by an uncle and a Dutch uncle, both of whom were veterans, both of whom moved in the last years of their life because they otherwise would have had to travel 250 miles to a VA clinic. And we've made that much easier, we've made accessibility for veterans much stronger. So let me ask you another sort of kind of high-level question, and you can take it where you want. By the way, I think your answer there, I would note that is sometimes there are ideological answers that are easier to provide and harder to implement. Sure. That's a clearly non-ideological and much more practical answer, well, at least as I hear you. Ideologically, just go back to what I said before. You want to help people who need help but you don't want to encourage helplessness, right? okay? And, you know, we have a situation at many parts of our healthcare where we set up incentives for not the right things to happen, but, but for the wrong things to happen. We've not contained costs as we did. When Governor Parnell was against Medicaid expansion, he wasn't against covering the uncovered. Uh, I was part of that administration. He was, he was essentially saying, let's work on cost containment before we get there. And we didn't work on cost containment. The governor went there. I, I, you know, I still think it's questionable how he did it, you know, constitutionally. But uh, more importantly, we got to a situation where the the numbers coming in and the requirements were much much larger than they should have been. So you mentioned obviously being a part of the Parnell administration. I think comparatively to his or that administration's peers in other states at the time, by some measures. Parnell administration was the most oppositional administration of almost any governor's administration in the country to the Affordable Care Act. Would a mean Treadwell administration be equally oppositional to the Affordable Care Act? Or do you think that the Affordable Care Act is largely settled law? Nobody really cares for it. Uh, but that 
it is what it is, and we got to move forward. Well, the, the Affordable Care Act is, the, you know, one of the best examples of dysfunction in Washington, where, you know, it is still almost impossible to make the kinds of changes that need to be made on things like tax policy, on things like uh, like uh, pushing it down. And I think we have to, you know, we even got into a situation where our senator was a pivotal vote uh, on, on this issue. I think we just, you know, ladies and gentlemen, all of you are in some kind of business, whether it's a nonprofit social service business or a for-profit business. All right, there is no free lunch. There is not a big gravy train. Okay. Yes, we have to deal with health in this country, but if we don't work together to contain costs, and I mean seriously, contain costs, we're going to bankrupt ourselves as a country. And Obamacare did not want to address those issues very well. So. You know, I'm not a vote on repealing it or not. I've called for its repeal in the past. I am a vote and always have been a vote for, you know, addressing a, a accessibility of health care in Alaska, which is a really big place uh, with some huge disparities. That, that, and when I say disparities, I mean the suicide rate uh, is one. Diabetes is another. Uh, uh, many of these problems are not a simple vote yes or no on something like that, but we have to figure out some way to contain costs. And I'm, it's not me coming in to, 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 you know, to be a skunk at a garden party on that, on that score. I'm saying that if we don't contain costs, we're going to have a huge crisis later, and I think we're near a crisis now. Well, Alaska does appear by independent analyses to have the most expensive health care of any state in the most expensive head of Primera saying it was the highest health care cost in the world here last week. Last week, yeah. So one of the strategies that advocates think will help, some advocates think will help lower costs. Some don't believe it. Some some think will raise costs, but I know some people in the room think they have. Some people in the room have an opinion on this question. Is the idea of essentially a unified purchasing model where the state of Alaska, through some sort of healthcare authority or some sort of single state agency, can purchase healthcare on behalf of uh, not just all state and, and retiree uh, state employees and retirees, but also school district employees and expand uh, to be very uh, broadly and actively engaged in, in the purchasing of health care for the state of Alaska. Any thoughts on a unified purchasing model to leverage the state's purchasing power, or does that sound like it might uh, disassociate purchasers from the benefits that they're, that they're attaining? Well, DJ, we have a situation in this state where we've actually moved to bring power closer to the people with healthcare. I mean, ANTHC over over time basically took healthcare away from the decisions totally made by the Indian Health Service and put it in the form of tribes. You have regional situations here. You've got the South Central Foundation. You've got many other groups around the state, and they're able to to pattern healthcare to meet people's needs. Where we've, in, in our labor negotiations, worked with uh, groups to set up trusts, whether it's the teachers' trust or the, uh, you know, some of the other health trusts, uh, it's allowed people to pattern this. And if uh, somebody's going to come back and say, you know, one person in Juneau knows better on all of this, I, I would be very careful before before I did that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm against single payer health insurance, and I'm against. Doing that, and it's not necessarily a magic bullet on containing costs, as I understand. So I'll look at it very carefully. Uh, I, I've seen, you know, Governor Walker push this. I've seen Mike Denlevy push push this, and I'm just not sure that's where we should go. What I am sure about is this: is the competition does help. 
there are things the state can do as a big bill payer. Now, we're not only a big payer, a bill payer on Medicaid, Medicare, state employees, current state employees, retired state employees, working, and, and we help provide funds, obviously, for education. And a large part of what we do with education and what we do with revenue sharing goes right back into pensions and health care. So is, does it make sense to have better coordination? Absolutely. Does it make sense to pull people's autonomy away? I tend to be somebody who wants to push autonomy away from central government to, to, to people. And, you know, so you got, you got two conflicting things for that. One of the sort of technical in the weeds issues that has caught some attention in the last few years is, is this administrative rule uh, known as the 80th percentile rule. Sorry that you know about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's very contentious depending on one's perspective. The rule, this is an oversimplification, but essentially uh, the rule allows uh, a provider in Alaska to be paid no less than the 80th percentile of what is usual and customary. It's a little more complicated than that, but in a given region, depending on specialization, specialty, essentially 80th percentile, almost a bill charges, but not quite, but usual and customary uh, charges. The idea of that rule is to help, in part, protect consumers from balance billing charges. It's also a tool to help attract providers to Alaska. Uh, it has also been a floor below which you know providers cannot get paid, so it created upward pressure uh, here in Alaska. Given all of that complexity, uh, what are your thoughts in general on that rule to the extent that you've had any painful time working on that or thinking about it? Senator Giesel has a, a, a bill that would take this issue on squarely, but it is an administrative rule that could be changed if the administrator, i.e. the governor, wanted to change it. Well, when you change a rule, you put it out for public comment, you talk about it, the so my, my experience in this particular rule is almost nil. Okay, I have heard people on the left and the right say that it's it's raised costs considerably. I've heard individual practice providers say that it's you know somewhat necessary, and I think we will have a debate on it. I don't have an instant answer, and I'm I'm not ashamed of not having an instant answer. That's great, but I I recognize that it is it, it may be a major contributing factor to the highest healthcare costs in the world. Well, I won't applaud anybody who says I don't know. Well, I, you know, I'm not afraid to say I don't know uh, on this and certainly in this field. I mean, yeah. you know, my experience in this field is this. I mentioned the tragedies that happen in our in, in our life, but, you know, I was chair of a, an Arctic Research Commission where we, uh, we had to get the federal government to help us address the suicide issue in Alaska. Uh, and... Uh, Meeting at NIH, the guy said, well, you only lose 80 kids a year. I'm working on malaria in Africa. And I said, you really don't want me to quote you by name on this. And uh, we've got, you know, a new new program working in that area. When my wife died, we gave a gift to Providence to bring grand rounds and try to get more Alaskans in. And I got on the board of a group that's supporting clinical trials. It bothers me greatly. And there's a couple of practitioners here in the room who are doctors who who have to spend so much time with the bureaucratic challenges of payment and filling out forms. And, you know, I, I had a kid who had to sign a living will before he could get a two-and-a-half-second X-ray, you know, at one point. Where, where you've got, where we've got all these things we've lumped on the healthcare community, 
And I want our healthcare providers to think about health. I want people to figure out what is it that we can do to, to, to lick the diabetes problem? What is it we can do to lick the di uh, depression problem? What is it we can do to bring behavioral health and mental health into protecting health and solving the crime issue? Those are the kinds of things that I want us to be dealing with. And we're involved in this huge morass on payment. It doesn't mean I'm going to ignore it. But I say, let's get back to basics. We need affordable health care. We need accessible health care. We need quality health care. And there's so many things we have to do to improve quality right now uh, that I'd much rather that be the debate than how the heck are we going to pay for it. But we have to have the debate on how we're going to pay for it. Well, we have folks in to participate. I want to make sure that you all who are sitting here in the audience can ask questions if you'd like. And I know uh, a number of you have a, a range of uh, opinions on just these topics that we've raised. So we'll let you all uh, take some questions uh, or make some comments. Fred up here, everyone's got his hand up. Take away, Fred. Well, Lieutenant Governor, we sincerely appreciate your coming and your presentation today. It was very helpful. Uh, you talked about uh, bureaucratic encumbrances. You talked about the need to get back to practicing medicine. I'm wondering if you could talk about your experience and your thoughts as to going forward how we deal with some of the federal oversight that we encounter. As an example, in 1980, in 1990, a vial of insulin cost between $20 and $25, maybe up to $30 by the late 1990s. But effective December 3rd, 1999, Code of Federal Regulations changed such that there was a removal of the prohibition about importing insulin. Up until then, if insulin got up toward $30, you could contact your pharmacist in Canada and they would send it over for, say, $28. But when that prohibition went into effect, beginning with Medicare Part D and then escalating with the Affordable Care Act, that $30 vial in the year 2000 is now approaching $350 per vial. So my question again is, what can we do to bring influence to Washington, D.C. to correct some of these oversights? And, and maybe uh, with that context, what is the role of Alaska's governor vis-a-vis -vis the federal government on health care and health policy, particularly related to health care costs? How, how would you work with the Trump administration? Well, first off, I'll tell you that it is as it's much a letter from Governor Walker that Senator Murkowski used for a no vote on saying we have to revise health care legislation. So the governor's role is fairly important, very important. It's also very important to go back and sit with the, the national uh, health authorities and uh, figure out how do you get the flexibility that meets our needs as a state. People don't understand that we have, you know, I, I've had to explain to Washington bureaucrats for years that you just can't send a, a truck to Queenflux. You know, uh, you can, that people can't expect to find an MRI where they live. They might live four or five hundred miles from, from from what they need. But Fred, to your question, you know, we're in a situation right now, and all of you in this room have got something that helps pay for your organization and your work, and something that maybe, you know, helps drive off the cost of health care, and maybe an idea to help lower the cost of health I think competition is good. I think free markets are good. There's people in the drug industry who don't. I, I and uh, that was one of the unholy bargains, frankly, made in, in Obamacare that that bothered me greatly. 
and that was perpetuated after after 1999. We've got health cost disparities here, not only with drugs but with services. There's things that we have to do to try to reduce health costs with competition, and by by being very serious with each other. In this case, standing up to a federal government to say, give us the flexibility to deal with our own local situation. You know, I mean, that's, that is a protectionist regulation, all right? As a Republican, I generally don't favor protectionism, all right? We've got to figure out how we can get competition and real, real costs back, in, back into the business. Let's go to the back here and uh, just tell us your name and your organizations. Trevor Storrs with Alaska Children's Trust, and thank you very much for this opportunity. And I appreciate your honesty about not knowing, and this is a very complex issue. In some of your statements, uh, like understand Obamacare over anything, some things work, nothing ever starts off perfect. There's some great important things that are working, there's things that aren't. Same with Medicaid expansion, all of this. What's going to be really important is to understand the data. But... To get uh, knowledgeable of health care, you're probably, after a first-term governor, you're still going to be about 50% there. What are you going to do? What are your three top things you're going to do to become informed so you can truly make the decisions? Who are you going to rely on to get that data, be able to make the decisions? Because uh, right now the conversation is very top level. How are you going to be able to get to that knowledge or who are you going to rely on for that knowledge to be able to make those decisions. That's going to be really key. That's a great question. Well, I, I haven't met anybody in the healthcare business who isn't serious about doing their job. And at the same time, I will tell you, I, I, I listen to doctors. I listen to doctors who have a challenge in not doing their job because they've got so many things to do. I, you know, I thank Dr. Farr, who's here for raising certain alarms. On the issue of uh, behavioral health, we have several advisory commissions, but I will tell you, you know, I'll, I'll go back to when we reconstituted the Mental Health Trust. Behavioral health is behind a large portion of what we've got, the crime problem, large portion of what we've got, and the, office, uh, you know, the challenges we see in Office of Children's Services, large portion of what we've got in addiction. And I think we have to work with the behavioral health community very, very closely to, to make sure that we've got a plan that meshes with, with the, the medical the medical community maybe more than it does today. Specifically, I can't. I, I'm not going to give you a list of list of names because I don't have it. But the, you know, I'll, I'll say this as I say this: say in a battle between sport and commercial fishermen, the governor's door should be open. Everybody should have an audience. Nobody should have a claim. The one thing that the people want us to do, and this is what I'm getting off the campaign trail, is protect Alaskans' health and don't bust the budget. All right? Help us do those two things. And if there's something like Fred brought up that is a problem, let's figure out how to solve that problem. So our door will be open. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, if, if you're politically one way or the other. The fact is, we have to work together. Hi, I'm on a fire family practice, like one Alaskan. So I have several different comments. One of these is 
I'm spending so much time now, for instance, doing the PNP database. Um, people that are on testosterone, that women that want to lose weight are on this database. But yet people that have been convicted of heroin or cocaine are not on this database. The vets don't have to be on it. So it's an incomplete database. It's a big waste of time. But it's had significantly adds five to ten minutes. Because I'm solo practice, I don't have staff that does it. I have to do it because I'm a licensed professional in the office. So it's done nothing but increased cost. And then this um, Bill 105 that just passed it says that I have to list the 60 top prices, 10 from each of six different CPT codes. I'm going to have to do that data. It's going to be out of date by the time it's posted on the state website. I'm going to have to post it on my walls, which is going to be fun having 60 pieces of paper posted on my wall. But anyway, what I'm saying is that there's so much administrative burden here. It's very difficult for us. And like Medicare, it isn't that we don't want to take care of our patients. The problem is we can't afford to take care of our patients. So I'm saying there's a lot of things that are beyond our control, a lot of things that are happening at both the state and federal level. Like, for instance, A&MC gets around $600 per seeing Medicaid patient. We get around $60 per seeing the same patient. So there's a disparity that's driving those of us in private practice out of business and increasing government medical care, shall I say. Thank you. Dr. Farrar, uh, first off on the, on the database, I hope I'm not to blame, but we had a database on the books uh, before I became Lieutenant Governor. Uh, I was concerned about the proliferation of people who were bicycling script to, to get more opioids on, on, on the street. I believe that database was, was an important tool. If we've implemented wrong, let's face it, all right? We've gone from paper fish tickets to electronic fish tickets. We've gone to barcodes and, and all sorts of other things. Frankly, one of the concerns that I've heard other doctors raise is that doctors aren't using the database uh, enough. And the opioid crisis is enough of a crisis. People are dying. I'll, I'll look for your ideas and other ideas to say, okay, how can we get the benefits of something like that without unnecessarily raising the costs? And uh, as far as the pricing issue, I've heard you talk about that on the radio. Uh, I don't want to drive our individual practitioners out of business. There's several of them here. Uh, I've relied on individual practitioners. And, uh, and while I understand group health and the benefits of group health, uh, I also understand the benefits and the flexibility of, of businesses. You know, the more you bureaucratize medicine, the harder it is to have flexible medical treatment. Hi, um, my name is Lynn Carroll, and I manage a practice here in town. I've been in medical management for almost 20 years now. I have, I think, more of a comment versus a question, but. Um, a prime example here, and, and first of all, I do want to say thank you for you know admitting that you, you know lack of understanding. Uh, it is. I, I mean, I've worked in for twenty years, and, and I still don't really sometimes feel like I understand everything that I should. But the biggest thing that I think we can point to as an example when people who work in medical are talking with the individuals, you know, our representatives and leaders, and they say, "Where are you getting this information? Who's telling you this? Who's making these recommendations to you?" And they always say, well, we have people on a health care committee. We talk to physicians. And no offense to physicians, because my physician is here. They're not the ones to talk to. It's the administrators and the managers. We actually deal with all of that stuff. We do it day in and day out. My physician's there to practice medicine and knows 
pretty much as much as what you would say you would know about the actual administrative portion. And so I just want to make sure that anybody moving forward into a leadership role in our politics, it would be well worth your time to actually talk to managers currently, currently working in practices to find out how things work. And my prime point of example will be, we have a, a state representative who was putting together a bill to about transparency. And my, our professional organization, Alaska Medical Group Managers you know, Association, we met with the state senator. And we explained to the state senator, one of the biggest things that for practices, private practices that have held us back is we cannot talk amongst each other about prices. It's collusion, it's illegal, and that gets us in a lot of trouble legally. However, and, and this particular state representative said, oh, well, I didn't know that. And I'm thinking, you just told us you have all of these people at your disposal that provide information to you, yet this very common thing that we all know, like those of us who actually work in medicine, like we know we can't do this, could have probably self-regulated ourselves and prices had we been able to do this. You're telling me you're making legislation, making rec and recommendations, and you don't even have all the information. So that was very tough for us to swallow and, and be supportive of that. Um, the same thing with another state representative who is very happy to be celebrating her bill passing through about transparency that Dr. Farr mentioned where we have to post all of our pricing. However, with that, even though we have to post everything, it is still illegal for us to talk amongst ourselves about pricing. So it makes no sense that I can't talk to another practice in our same specialty to see on average what they're charging, yet I have to post that now for everyone to see at any particular point in time. I mean, that really is counteractive and it, it makes no sense. So um, I would just say I would caution anybody that's elected to really make sure you're talking to the right people. We're getting real short on time. I want to give you an opportunity sir, to ask a quick question and then get a quick answer. Thank you, me. My name is Christopher Constantin. I serve in the assembly, but I'm wearing the hat of the Keela administrator. So for 30 years, behavioral health care has been a primary cost driver and also a primary cost containment area. If you work in the field, you know for 30 years every year we've seen successive cuts. But the problems that we are impacted by homelessness, addiction, Needles in our parks all have a nexus in behavioral health care. In 2000, the state cut API in half with a promise that they would provide community-based supports. So they got the first half right. They cut API in half to 75 beds. And now, if you didn't know, they're operating at 22 beds. And the funding hasn't been implemented into the community to provide community-based supports. Then you fast forward to a couple of years ago with criminal justice reform. And the promise was we're going to take people out of the most expensive level of incarceration and put them in the community and provide the supports that they need. Again, they got the first half right. They closed the jails, and then they put all those people in our community, but they are not providing the supports that are necessary. And so if it is not a budgetary investment, because this division has been the cost containment zone for the state, what is it that you can do as governor to promote an increase in supportive services for the people who are harming themselves and harming our communities the moment. Let me ask you to solve that Herculean problem. <laughs> One, we have to listen and we have to we have to bring folks together on this. Two, as far as mental health, I think we are 
search of some very important frontiers of analytic behavior that, that uh, we have to look at this across the board. It's not just API funding. Incarceration and wellness courts have actually helped. There's, you know, I, I am a defender of our Second Amendment rights, and yet I believe mental health first aid is something that we're all going to learn the same way we learned CPR in the last generation, right? There is much, much more to be done in this in this area. I don't have an answer. I and and I don't think I, I defy any candidate who comes here and says he has an answer to to, to, to do it. But we're not going to drop the problem. Let me just say again that it is extraordinarily uncommon anywhere in the United States for a candidate running for statewide office to spend an hour fielding questions about health care and health policy. Thank you, Lieutenant Governor, former Lieutenant Governor Beach Redwell candidate for uh, the Republican nomination for governor of the great state of Alaska. Thank you for being here. Let's give a round of applause. That wraps up this edition of our State of Reform podcast. Be sure to like us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Emily Berger, myself, DJ Wilson, Margie High, Kariana Wilson, Laura Lumberg, Rita Waldrop, Karen Horton, and Brandon Johnson. We've got our Alaska State of Reform Health Policy Conference coming up on October 10th. Love to have you join us for that. And if you're interested in other health policy discussions from across the Western United States, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. We cover Hawaii, Alaska, Washington, Oregon, California, and Texas. A few other stories filled in in between. Love to have your followership, your subscribership, and love to have you join us at our Alaska conference. For more information, visit stateofreform.com. Until next time, we appreciate you listening.